So we are finishing up the book of Jonah uh, this week, which is a little bit sad because I have really enjoyed uh, our study as a church through the book of Jonah. As I was working on this sermon, I was, I was debating splitting it up into two, uh, but I decided uh, this will be our, our last sermon in the book of Jonah. And then after this, we are going to be starting a long series with some breaks in between in the book of Luke. Uh, so uh, the book of Luke is really uh, a great uh, gospel, not that all of them aren't great, but the, the, the book of Luke is, I think, a good one uh, for a church to walk through together. There's one verse in there that's kind of the theme of the, the whole book, and that is that uh, when Christ says, I came to seek and save the lost. And so I think as we're following up on the book of Jonah, we want to be people who seek and save the lost as well, and Jesus is going to show us uh, what that looks like uh, in his ministry. And so I'm excited to do that. Um, the timing worked out perfectly that on Christmas morning we'll be, we'll be looking at the birth of Christ. So that's going uh, to be great. Anyways, let's get into our sermon this morning. Now most of you have probably heard of uh, the Pharaoh, King Tut. King Tut. He's the, probably the most famous Egyptian Pharaoh to live. And he's also arguably one of the richest people to ever live. So when he died at the young age of 17, he was so rich that he was buried with the equivalent of $26 million. He was buried with gold, statues, diamonds, jewelry, and, and hundreds of other valuable treasures. This wasn't all of his wealth. This is just what he was buried with. Now, this is a, something that the Egyptians would do. And the reason that they would do it is because they had this belief that uh, whatever you died with, that is what you would take with you into the afterlife. And so they would bury themselves with uh, many possessions so that they would wake up in the next life uh, rich and prosperous. Now, besides the fact that this is just a, a wrong view of how things work, one of the things that I always wondered about this is, is how selfish did you have to be to do that? I mean, think about it. There were people in this, this pharaoh's country who were dying from starvation. There were lifelong slaves. There were many poor peasants just scraping to get along. And yet the king takes his, his $26 million and closes it in his tomb with him forever. So the king would rather die alongside all of his possessions than see them be used to help another. Now, the reason I mention this is because this is essentially the attitude that we're going to see from Jonah in chapter 4. See, Jonah would rather die with this great possession, the, the grace of God, than to see the grace of God shared with his enemies. And we've seen hints of this already so far leading up to this final chapter. And so let me give you a, a, a quick recap of what has happened so far. In Jonah 1, Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. God says, arise and go to Nineveh and, and preach against them. But Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, and so instead he heads to Tarshish. And he gets on a boat, and as he's out on the boat, God sends judgment upon him by sending this big storm. And so Jonah realizes at that point that he only has two options. He can either repent of his sin from running away from God, or he could die. Unfortunately, he chooses to die. He would rather die than bring the message of grace to the Ninevites. 
And so the sailors grab him and they throw him overboard. But in Jonah 2, we see that God is gracious to Jonah. He saves him from his death by sending this fish to come and swallow him. And in the fish, we finally see Jonah turn to God. And so Jonah, up to this point, he's not said anything to God. He's not prayed to God. But here we see him come and pray to God. He is thankful that God has spared him from death. But then we saw that even in his prayer, there's still some, some problems that Jonah has to get over. Jonah's not quite getting. He's not quite understanding the grace of God. He's thankful but his heart is still not changed towards God or the Ninevites. So then in Jonah 3, Jonah gets spit up upon the shore, and now God gives him a second chance. He calls Jonah to go again, and this time Jonah obeys, and he goes and he preaches to the Ninevites. And then to everyone's surprise, the Ninevites fall down in repentance. Even the king steps off his throne, and he repents to God. They turn away from their evil. Now, if this story was simply a a historical account of of how God was being merciful to the Gentile nations, then the story clearly could have have ended here. I mean, we we could have had our our Disney princess storybook ending. They all lived happily ever after. The the Ninevites repent, God relents, and, and the plan that God had set out from the beginning with Jonah all comes to completion. But the book doesn't end there. We still have one final chapter. And the question is, why? And why why do we have Jonah chapter 4? Well, the reason is because the book of Jonah is more than just a historical narrative of what happened to the Ninevites. The book of Jonah is a a plea. It's It's a plea to its readers. It's a plea to us that we would not be like Jonah that we would not fall into the same sins that Jonah falls into. And for that reason, today we are going to look at at four sins of Jonah. And it's not so that we can, you know, point our finger and laugh at Jonah. We've been doing enough of that already. The point is so that we can see Jonah's sins, we can see his problems, and then we can see them in our own lives, and we can turn from them. and, And we don't do the same things that Jonah does. And so if you're not already there, turn your Bibles to Jonah 4, and we'll read God's Word this morning. Jonah chapter 4. Actually, you know what? I'm going to read Jonah chapter 3, verse 10 first. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, this not, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat in the shade till he should see what he sat he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. 
Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do. Well, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor you did not make it grow, which came into being a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. So as I mentioned, we're going to look at four sins of Jonah. And the the first two sins I want to look at together uh, because they're linked. They're related to one another. And you might not not see this right away, but I want you to bear with me. And so these first two sins of of Jonah that we're going to look at are Jonah's anger, which you can clearly see, and Jonah's idolatry, his anger and his idolatry. See, in verse 1, the the passage is, is, it, it very clearly states... You know, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And then again in verse 9, it says, you know, he's angry enough to die. And so you can imagine Jonah here. He's, he's fuming mad. The, the Hebrew word literally means that he's, he's burning with anger. And we, and we know that. If you've gotten angry, you know, you know you start to feel a little hot. Your armpits sweat a little bit. Your, your skin turns red because there's, there's your, your uh, vessels are, are dilating and... You're trying to get more oxygen to your blood. Your skin is hot. So this is Jonah. Jonah is, is fuming. His, his heart is racing. And now, it's a little bit interesting because this isn't really like Jonah. I mean, up to this point, Jonah, he's, he's disobeyed God, but he's been relatively reserved throughout the story. I mean, he, he leaves, he just goes down to the bottom of the boat, and he, and he takes a nap, and he's not too angry. But now something is, is setting him off. The question is, what is that? What is setting Jonah off? Well, we see in verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. See, Jonah, Jonah is angry not at the Ninevites, He's not angry at himself. He's really angry at God and what God has done. Verse 1 says that it it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And now in your Bible, you probably have a little number beside that. And if you look down at the bottom, it says this can also be translated or literally translated. It was an evil to Jonah, a great evil. And so Jonah sees what God has done, his forgiving of the Ninevites, as evil. I mean, Nineveh is is wicked. They are evil. They are the enemies of Israel, and they deserve to perish, not be spared. 
this is wrong. It, it shouldn't be happening. God should not be showing them any pity or any mercy, but the opposite. See, God wasn't, wasn't operating in the way that Jonah thought God should operate. See, God was not, was not fitting inside this box that Jonah had made saying, this is how God works. This is what God should be like. And so as a result, he, he burns with anger. And then Jonah here also finally admits the reason why he left in the first place. He says in verse 2, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. See, Jonah didn't run because he was afraid of the Ninevites. He ran because he was afraid that God would forgive the Ninevites. And he knew that God was gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. But he didn't want any part in God's plan to show these things to Nineveh. Now your thought might be, why would anybody be angry about this? I mean, why, like, shouldn't you be rejoicing about this if your enemies come uh, to repentance? Like, why is, why is Jonah so angry? Well, it's because of the second sin of Jonah that I mentioned, and that is Jonah's idolatry. You see, Jonah's anger is just the, the fruit of a greater, a greater root problem. What we see in Jonah is, is his anger flaring up against God, but underlying that is the source of the problem, and, and, and that is that Jonah is an idolater. Now, this is a little bit ironic because if you remember back in Jonah 2, verse 8, Jonah takes a jab at idolaters. You know, he's praying when God delivers him. He's, he says uh, in verse 8, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, here he's, he's taking a, a shot at the sailors that are, are were calling out to their gods. He's taking a shot at the Ninevites who were idol worshipers. But it comes back around to him like a, like a boomerang because Jonah himself proves to be an idolater. And it's funny because he says, those who worship vain idols uh, forsake the steadfast love of God, and he's completely right. But it's ironic because he is the idolater, and he is now forsaking the steadfast love of God. That's what he's upset about, that God is a God who shows steadfast love. And so though, though Jonah, he's not, he's not bowing down to these idols that he's, he's whittled out of wood, he's still an idolater. Now, the question is, what is his idol? Well, his idol is his nation and the future of his nation. So let me explain. Jonah, Jonah knew that Israel, his nation, was in rebellion against God. Read through the book of Kings. Uh, you'll see that at this time of Jeroboam II was a very especially wicked time uh, for the people of Israel. There's multiple prophets that were sent, Amos and Hosea, and Hosea compares the people of, of Israel at that time to a prostitute who has given herself to other men. And the point is, is that that's what Israel has done. Israel has given themselves to other gods, and they have become lawless. And Jonah, Jonah knew this, and Jonah knew that because of their rejection of the covenant with God, that the curses of the covenant would eventually come crashing down on their heads. And he knew that God uses means. God is a God who uses means to accomplish things on earth. And the nation that was most likely to 
be the means by which God poured his wrath out upon Israel for their violation of his covenant was going to be the nation of Assyria, the military superpower of the time. And so Jonah is angry because if Assyria is spared from God's wrath, that they will still exist to punish Israel for their sin. Jonah is kind of hoping for a, a kill the executioner before the executioner kills you kind of thing. But God shows mercy to Nineveh. God shows mercy to the nation of Assyria instead. And this now threatens Jonah's idol. It threatens the the future of the nation of Israel. And so idolatry is really Jonah's root problem. But there there are two fruits that we see that show us this idolatry. Idolatry is hard to spot. It's hard to spot in our own lives. But we can spot it when we look at the fruits that come from idolatry. And those fruits are are typical responses to idolatry. And the first one is is anger, which we've talked about, we'll talk a little bit more about. And the second one is despair. Anger and despair. Those often are, are linked to idolatry in our lives. And so first we have anger. So because God spared Nineveh and now Jonah's idol, the the thing that has brought him joy in life, the thing that has brought him meaning, the thing that has brought him security and love is now being threatened. And anger is what Scripture tells us will be the response of idolaters. If you want, you can flip in your Bibles to James 4. Or I'll, I'm also going to read it. Uh, and this is what it says in James 4, verse 1. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Or, or what causes this anger uh, among you. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, our, our passions, these desires that we have, which may even be legitimate desires, like love, respect, uh, rest, approval, honor. They can be, can be good things, but they can wrongly come to rule over us in the place of God. And then we respond in anger when we do not have them. See, these, these, these things become of, of greater importance to us than honoring God and glorifying God in our relationships. We elevate the fulfillment of these passions more than we elevate the commandments of God. And so the next time you get angry, think about that. Think about that. How am I, how am I elevating some passion or desire here above God that is making me angry? You know, what does my, what does my heart want so much in this moment that I am willing to sin for it? Am I desiring some peace and quiet, and then when my, my kids are loud and running around, I, I snap at them and, and get angry? Am I desiring respect from my spouse or from someone else, so when, when they or, or someone subtly insults me, I, I give them the silent treatment? Am I desiring order, so when my house is, is not in order, I walk around in, in bitterness and frustration and, and whisperings under my breath. 
See, God wants us, he wants us to ask these questions when we're in these times. And I think that's, that's what God is doing to Jonah in verse 4. He says to Jonah in verse 4, do you do well to be angry? Or in other words, God is, God is asking Jonah, is it right for you to be angry here? Are you, are you angry about righteousness or are you, are you angry about your idol? Because you're not getting your desires and your passions. Now implicit within this question is the idea that some anger can be justified. We see in the, the Bible that God is angry towards sin. And if God is, is angry towards sin, then anger must not always be wrong. Because if God can be angry and God never sins, then anger is not always a sin. But sometimes, most of the time, anger is wrong. And what is wrong with most anger is, is really two things. First is the motivation of our anger, and second is the expression of our anger. See, if you're, if you're angry, if the motivation for your anger is, beca- is because some idol in your life is being challenged, then it is sinful. If your anger is to get some sort of revenge on someone, then it is sinful. If your anger is because of your lack of expression of the fruits of the Spirit, then it is sinful. Motivation matters, and so does expression. I mean, even if your anger is over something justifiable, like someone sinning against you, but you express it in, in harshness or in frustration or in bitterness or or biting words, or passive aggressiveness, or yelling, or any of of these other ways that that the Bible condemns, then it is sinful. I mean, you might have a good reason to be angry over sin, but the moment that you express it in one of these ways that the Bible condemns, you too have now sinned. And so it goes back to asking ourselves the same question that God asked Jonah. Is it right that I am angry. And we're going to see that most of the time, it's not. It's not. And so we are in sin. And so what is the solution? I mean, maybe you're an angry person and you, you see that and you want to know, how do I stop? How do I stop being angry? I feel like when arguments arise, I just get angry. I'm not really wanting to, but I just get angry. How do I deal with that? Well, you need to deal with the root of the problem, which is idolatry, elevating some sort of passion, idol, above God. Back at uh, my house in, in Welland, my old house, uh, I like to have a nice lawn. Uh, I'd go out and I would, I would pick weeds by hand. I would uh, do all of this stuff to make my lawn look nice. Now, I don't think that's ever going to happen at my new place. But, um, and and uh, sometimes when I would be out there, my daughters, they, they would see me doing this and they'd want to come out and help me. I was very thankful for that. But the problem was, they would just come and they thought picking weeds was, you just get rid of all the leaves that the weeds have. And so I'd have to remind them, no, if, if, if you want the weed to be gone, you need to pull it out at the root. I can pull off all the leaves have the nicest lawn on the block for a couple of days, but those weeds are going to come back because I haven't dealt with the root. And the same is true with anger. Sometimes we want to just deal with 
the expressions of our anger. You know, I'll, I'll bite my tongue. I won't, I won't say anything this time. Well, yeah, you're dealing with the expression of the anger, but your heart is still hard. If you're saying, I'm able to control my tongue, but in my heart I really want to say these things, you're not dealing with the problem of anger. You're just dealing with some of the, the, the leaves of the weed, not the root itself. And so we need to deal with the root if we want to change. If you want freedom from your anger, you need to, you need to beat down those idols in your heart and put God back where he belongs. Listen to the rest of the words of, of James 4 that I had read earlier. He says, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Repent. Get off of the throne of your heart. Cast aside the idols that you are serving, that you've been submitting to, that you've been ruled by, and now submit yourself and your passions once again to God. That's how we, we fight anger. We say, God, what here am I desiring above you? Am I desiring that my, my wife respects me and I don't feel respected, so I'm getting anger, angry? Lord, help me to, to turn, help me to, to tear that idol down and recognize that you are Lord and that I must submit to you and be called to love my wife as Christ loves the church, not be angry with her. We need to cast aside our idols and submit to God. Now, in addition to anger... I'd said that there are two fruits that often reveal idolatry in the heart. Uh, first is anger. Second one is despair. Idolatry often brings despair. And we see this in verse 3 when he says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. See, idolatry, as I said, it's, it's hard to spot. And so how do you tell... If something is just a a normal love in your life, like your family, like you should love your family. You should should love your your wife, your spouse, as Christ loves the church. But how do we know that, where does the line go from from love to idolatry? I think one of the things to look for is what happens when that thing is taken away? What happens when you, you don't get it? What is your response? Is it hopelessness, despair, like Jonah? You know, is it, is it, I'd rather die than live on without it? If I can't have it, what is really the, the point of me living? Now, sadness, sadness is, is okay. Sadness is, is good. It's a, it's a natural human response to, to difficult things. But hopeless despair is often a sinful fruit of idolatry. Now, I want, to be, I want to be careful with this because things like despair and depression, they're not, they're not black and white issues. Depression has, has many causes. It could be physiological. It could be psychological. It could be spiritual. It could be situational. And so to boil let's say, depression down to, to a single issue in a person's life. It's, it's, it's ignorant and it's not uh, understanding the reality of the sinful world that we live in. And it's really doing a disservice to people. 
mean, depression for many is a, is a form of suffering in which we are called to, to faithfully endure through and to, to hold on to God in that, that suffering. But to also say that depression is never spiritual, that it's never a sin issue, is equally doing a disservice to people. Depression can and does have a spiritual cause sometimes. And we see that here with Jonah. And so I just want to, to pose the question to you and leave it, leave it there for you to think on. If you struggle with depression, despair, hopelessness, what, whatever you might define that as in your life, is it possible that one of the contributing causes might be idolatry in your life? Is there, is there some sort of ideal that you have formed in your mind that, you know, only if you had that, you would have hope and you would be satisfied? Maybe you, you lose all your money in a bad investment and so you fall into depression because Making that money, having, having money, having security in that is what you have dedicated your life to. That is, that is the idol of your life. Maybe your spouse sins against you. you know, the person that you once trusted, the person that you put your faith in, the person that you thought you know, could never wrong you in that way. And then all of a sudden now they reveal themselves to be a false idol that you can't put your weight on and you fall into depression. Maybe you desire rest and peace and, and comfort, but between the kids and, and the house and the, the troubles of the world, you can't find that. And so you fall into depression. Like Jonah, when our, when our idols come crashing down or when we realize that they cannot satisfy, that's often a fruit. We fall into despair and depression. I mean, maybe you have even said those words or thought those words that Jonah has said, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the good news of the gospel is that, that there is hope. Thanks be to God that, that he, is, he is able to bring us through the pit of despair. Christ entered into despair in order to walk us through our despair. And so what Jonah needed to do was to recognize that even if, even if God was going to destroy Israel, that he could trust the working of God even in that. That God would mercifully bring him through his difficulties. That God was more worthy to worship than his idol and that he didn't need to be hopeless because God is a good God. And that's what we ought to do as well. And so we see Jonah's first two sins, his, his idolatry and his anger. God is, God is not operating the way that Jonah wants God to operate. God is, God is challenging Jonah's idol. And so Jonah would rather die than worship a God who is like that. Now moving on to the next section, we see Jonah's third and fourth sins. And those are uh, the sins of hypocrisy and the sin of, I couldn't find like a, 
perfect word that fit what I was wanting to communicate in one word. So I just called it his sin of misvaluation, misvaluation. But first, let's look at the change in our, our story. There's a, there's a setting change that occurs in verse 5. It says, Jonah went out to the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And so we see that Jonah's preached his message, and now he goes out of the city. He goes to the outskirts to the east. And the people of Nineveh, they've, they've been shown the grace of God. They've repented when Jonah preached. Yet Jonah still sits there, heart of heart. You know, he goes out to the city to watch what's going to happen. He's hoping, deep down, that maybe these people will like, uh, turn back to their evil ways. And maybe God will relent of his re- previous relenting. And so he sits there and, he, and he's, he's waiting for these 40 days to be up to, to see what happens to the city. But little does Jonah know that God is now going to use this time to teach Jonah another lesson. So look at verses 6 to 8. It says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And so we have this scene here where where Jonah goes to the outskirts of town and he builds for himself a little structure. But then God, once again being gracious to Jonah, it says that he appoints a plant. And this plant quickly grows up over the structure. It would have been a stone structure, so not really much of a roof. And so this plant grows over and it forms this shade for Jonah. And we see Jonah's response in verse 6. It says that he was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And so back in verse 1, we saw Jonah was displeased exceedingly, but now all of a sudden he's exceedingly glad. He's he's going from one extreme to the other. But then we see this gladness would only last so long, because in the night God now appoints a worm, and the worm goes and it attacks the plant that was shading Jonah, and it withers and dies. And then on top of that, it says God appoints this strong, hot wind, to now come and blow across Jonah. And so once again, Jonah now goes back to despair and he cries out, just like he did before, it is better for me to die than to live. And now why is God doing all of this? I mean, it almost seems as if God is playing some sort of of game with Jonah to try and uh, aggravate or torment him. So why why is God doing this? Well, God is doing this in grace to show Jonah his sin, and specifically to show him the the third sin we're looking at, the sin of hypocrisy. Because look at what Jonah says next in verse 9, or God then Jonah. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? So the same question he asked him in, in verse 4, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. 
angry enough to die. See, Jonah's third sin is hypocrisy because he's a, he's a hypocrite in regards to God's grace. When God saved him from the whale, he was, he was joyful, he was praying, he was praising God for the grace that he had shown him. When God sends him this plant to shade him from the hot sun, he's exceedingly glad and he's all happy. But when God doesn't show him grace, when God withholds his grace from him, he's angry. So angry that he will die. Now the hypocrisy here is that he is all for God being gracious. He is all about those words that God is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, when he receives the benefits of that. But if God is going to show grace to Nineveh, well, that's, that's just intolerable. You know, he's like the unforgiving servant that we read about earlier. The servant is, is forgiven this unforgivable debt by the king. The king forgives him, absorbs the debt himself, but then that same servant goes out and demands that, demands that someone who owes him money pays him. And if he doesn't pay him, he's going to throw himself and his family into prison. He'll receive grace, but not extend it. I think a question we need to ask ourselves is, is that us? Is that us this morning? <coughs> Do you look at others, maybe even others who have hurt you or wronged you, and see them as not worthy of deserving your forgiveness or grace? Well, think for a moment what God has forgiven you. Every evil thought that you have ever thought, every evil word that you have ever spoken, every evil intention of the heart that you have ever had, every evil action that you have ever committed, all of it forgiven by the grace of God through Jesus' death on the cross. Now, if that is true, how can you not forgive someone who comes to you asking for you to show them grace and mercy? You've been forgiven the equivalent of, of a thousand lifetimes of debt, but when someone owes you a few dollars, you can't forgive them? That's not to minimize that when people sin against us, it, it, that it doesn't hurt. It definitely hurts. But we're still called to forgive. It hurt God to send His Son to die on the cross. Yet He did it in order to forgive. And so don't be a Jonah. Don't be a hypocrite. Extend to others the same grace that God has extended to you. It doesn't matter if they are deserving. That's the point of grace and forgiveness. We don't deserve it, yet God gives it anyways. <coughs> so that's Jonah's third sin, hypocrisy. <clears throat> and finally, now, we see Jonah's last sin, and that's Jonah's misvaluation. Look at verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also 
much cattle. See, God shows Jonah in this last section that he has misvalued things in his life. Specifically, he has misvalued the salvation and the worth of others. Jonah cares so much for this this plant, which he had no part in creating, and which was there for a single day, and yet he cares nothing for the souls of 120,000 image bearers of God. God God is essentially saying to Jonah here, do you not see that humans are more valuable than vines? Do you not see that if, if you pity a, a plant like this, then you should most certainly pity the souls of these perishing humans? And I think that that should strike us to the heart because we often do this. We misvalue things so much when it comes to this. I mean, we get... We get passionate, we get moved, we get excited about many things, but rarely is that thing the salvation of others. And part of the reason for that is that we will probably say with our mouths that, that we, we, of course we value people, but I think really the problem is that we have, we have misvalued the eternal soul of the lost. Hudson Taylor, the the great missionary to China, sees that as the reason why many in the church have failed in the area of, of missions. He says this, and I quote, Perhaps if there were more of that intense distress for souls that leads to tears, we should more frequently see the results that we desire. Sometimes it may even be that while we are complaining about the hardness of hearts of those we are seeking to benefit, the hardness of our own hearts and our feeble apprehension of the solemn reality of eternal things may be the true cause of our want of success. See, we ought to be more distressed. We ought to value more the eternal souls of perishing sinners. And it's not because they're, they're worthy of salvation. It's the opposite. Look at how God describes the people of Nineveh. He calls them persons who do not know their right hand from their left. And God's not taking a shot at the Ninevites here, saying they're kind of, they're, they're dumber in some way, or making some sort of comment about their mental capabilities. He's pointing out here the pitiable state that they're in. I mean, they are, are sinners rightly condemned under the wrath of God because of their sin, but they're pitiable because they have no way to get themselves out. Yet we know, we know the people of God know that there is a way. And it's not through themselves, it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we hold that key that can can get them out of their bondage. And so we are to look at their their state of hopelessness and by the power and grace of God, bring them the hope of the gospel. (coughs) And Jesus, uh, I think, is a good example of this. Jesus, as he is, he's speaking to the, the Pharisees. He says that one who is greater than Jonah is here. We talked about that in the very first sermon. One who is greater than Jonah is here. And we said 
this points to many things. Jonah being thrown overboard for the salvation of, of the Gentiles. Jesus uh, being the, the true prophet who obeys the call of God to go with the message of the gospel. We also see it again here. See, Jesus, as he, as he approaches Jerusalem, Luke 19 says that, that he weeps over it. He weeps because of the judgment that is coming upon the people of Jerusalem. Now contrast that to Jonah. Jonah, he goes, he goes outside the city to watch the destruction of the lost. Yet Jesus goes outside of the city to the cross in order to accomplish the salvation of the lost. And so really we have a choice here. Do we want to be more like Jesus, the true and greater Jonah, or do we want to be like the grumpy Jonah? Do we want to to weep for the lost? Do we want to have compassion for the lost? Now the passage ends with a question that is posed by God. And you'll notice that the question, it's not answered by Jonah. It ends, the passage ends with a question mark. Now why is that? It's because it's not about Jonah's answer. It's not about Jonah's answer. It's about your answer. Jonah, Jonah fades out of the story here, and now we see ourselves in this story. And the question that God is asking is posed to us. Will you see the compassion of God in your own life and extend that same compassion to others? Will you choose anger, idolatry, self-pity, and hypocrisy like Jonah, or will you choose compassion, tenderness, grace, and mercy like God? When we, when we started the book of Jonah, that was my, my prayer and my goal, and that will still be my prayer, that our church would have the same heart and the same vision for the lost that God has. goes to the with the words of Charles Spurgeon who can say it better than I can and his vision for a godly church <coughs> he says this the fact is brethren that we must have conversion work here we cannot go on as some churches do without converts we cannot we will not we must not we dare not souls must be converted here and if there be not many born to Christ, may the Lord grant to me that I may sleep in the tomb and be heard of no more. Better indeed for us to die than to live if souls be not saved. Let's pray.